Hello, Dementia Matters podcast listeners. Thank you for returning to the podcast during this COVID-19 pandemic. I know you have a lot on your mind, and despite being at home, I know life is not easy. It's an understatement to say we are living in an extraordinary time, but whatever you want to call this ongoing experience, it is asking extraordinary things of us. And life doesn't just stop because of it, which is why this podcast continues. I want to pivot here on Dementia Matters and address important issues affecting those with cognitive impairment and those without during this COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic. I cannot cover all the issues and frankly shouldn't. I encourage you to go to trusted sources for specific information, such as the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, your state and local health department websites, and the Alzheimer's Association. You can also find resources on our website at adrc.wisc.edu, that's adrc.wisc.edu, and that of the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Institute at wai.wisc.edu. For other interesting and important stories on the COVID-19 pandemic, I would recommend my colleague at UW Health, Dr. Jonathan Kohler of the Surgery Set Podcast, who has a special series called The Frontlines of COVID. We will include these links to all these resources in our show notes. For those of you affected by Alzheimer's disease or any cause of cognitive impairment, you know better than anyone that it takes a community to care for those affected and to work on the front lines of treatment, prevention, and cure. What we face with COVID-19 is no different. We all are needed in this fight, and I thank you for whatever it is that you're doing. Take care and be safe. My guest today on Dementia Matters is Dr. Art Wallacek, a geriatric psychiatrist with expertise in the mental health of older adults and the behavioral and psychological symptoms of dementia, known as BPSD. His clinical expertise is in mental illness among older adults, including depression, anxiety, as well as mental illness in dementia. He sees patients at UW Health Behavioral Health Clinic. In addition to his clinical work, Dr. Walsack is Vice Chair for Education and Faculty Development and Director of Psychiatry Residency Training at the University of Wisconsin Department of Psychiatry. He is co-leader of the Outreach, Recruitment, and Engagement Corps at the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center and directs the Public Health Pillar of the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Institute. Welcome back, Dr. Walsack, to Dementia Matters. Dr. Chin, thank you very much. Thanks for having me on again. I'm excited to be talking with you again, though I must say I wish it were under different circumstances. The COVID-19 pandemic and its consequences are the reason I'm interviewing you today. On today's program, I want to focus on the psychological consequences of isolation and tips for daily behavior to ideally prevent them. Our part two episode will be on anxiety, stress management, and coping in the time of, of the pandemic. So to begin with, what consequences does isolation have on our psychological health? Well, uh, it's, it's a great question. And, and more broadly, uh, Nate, thanks very much for covering this really important uh, topic. Uh, we worry a lot about the mental health of older adults in all kinds of situations. And, and this is an especially trying one, especially with all the isolation that goes along with 
uh, the restrictions associated with the pandemic. So, you know, we're social creatures. Uh, we've evolved over millions of years to interact with each other, to work together, to cooperate, to build things together, to have relationships, uh, to have kids, to have families, you know, and, and, and so on. And so, being alone is uh, is an inherently difficult state for for human beings. Um, so uh, you know, isolation, loneliness contribute to things like um, depression, to anxiety. Um, in really extreme states, you know, people can have uh, even problems with you know hallucinations and kind of testing what's really going on, reality testing. Um, so, uh, you know, we worry a lot about, uh, the, the effects of isolation and, and older adults where they might be at risk, further risk because they already had some loneliness and isolation to begin with, or they have problems with vision or hearing that make them more isolated or cognitive impairment. Uh, uh older adults are going to be at higher risk of some of the negative effects of, uh, of isolation. You know, I'm really glad you're speaking to how important uh, being social is. Because one of the things that I've come across is it is absolutely critical that we social distance from other people, that we do stay inside. But it's not an easy thing. I mean, we, we speak about it as if it were easy. But at least, you know, we are social. We are meant to be with other people. And because of that, I, I would like to just say it is hard to be in my house when I would prefer to be outside with my neighbors and friends. I mean, do you feel like that, that there's that dissonance for us? I, I really appreciate your bringing that up. I think that's right. I, I think, um, you know, for sure from like an infectious disease point of view, social distancing is the right thing to do, but it's psychologically really tough. Uh, you know, you sort of think about all the day-to-day -day interactions you might have with someone, uh, you know, uh, friends, co-workers, caregivers, say you're an older adult in an assisted living facility, the other residents at mealtime and so on, um, all of a sudden, you know, really kind of within days, basically, all that has shifted around to much more time by yourself. And so it's, um, it's difficult and it happened rapidly. We were all asked to do it very rapidly. And so that, uh, that, that makes it harder as well. Yeah, I, 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 I'm glad you're saying it because, frankly, for those that are listening, I just want them to know I understand that it's hard to be in your home and to be isolated. Please continue to be in your home for the sake of our public health, um, but but know that it is difficult. And I, I was hoping, Dr. Walsak, you could also comment on this difficulty and the psychological health consequences, does this differ based upon gender or personality differences? I'm thinking about people who are extroverts versus those that are introverts. Yeah, it's a great question. It basically gets to, you know, can we predict who might be at higher risk of having trouble with isolation? Uh, personality is sort of a complicated structure. It, it, it means a lot of different things. I mean, kind of most broadly, it's the way we interact with the world and kind of understand what's going on and kind of helps inform our relationships with other people. 
Uh, and one way of thinking about that is introversion versus extroversion. So an introvert is tends to be kind of a, a quieter, sticking to themselves, more less interactive with other folks kind of person. And an extrovert is really kind of attuned to what's going on socially, especially they, you know, they really uh, pick up on positive social cues and, and interactions. Um, and so it, it, it turns out that people who are introverts, uh, interestingly, you know, do worse in these settings. So when you're lonely and isolated and, and, and so on. So that's a predictor of folks not doing as well. There's another kind of personality construct that may sound a little bit like a blast from the past, but there's a term that we used to use called neurotic. So these were folks who were anxious, who worried a lot, fretted over things a lot. Um, it turns out there's still like a version of that in our understanding of personality. It's called neuroticism. It's, you know, how prone you are uh, basically to, to worry about things, uh, essentially. Um, and those folks don't do as well either in, in uh, times of isolation. It gets a little complicated because those things are linked together, like introverts tend to be more on the neurotic side. So it can be a little hard to tease some of those things um, apart. Uh, but it can be helpful. Like, so who should we reach out to in these times? Um, everybody, ideally. But if you really had to, you know, focus on who might be at highest risk of struggling with the isolation, it might be the more introverted folks. It might be the folks who are more prone to to worry and anxiety to begin with. I think another interesting point that I'm hearing from you is really to be understanding of oneself and to, in essence, be patient, um, knowing that you might be an introvert or an extrovert or, or a little bit neurotic, which I think we all are to some degree. Um, but I think about people who are sharing the same space in their home, whether it is partners or siblings or parent versus child, you know, we're going to handle this differently. And a part of that, interesting enough, is due to personality differences. Absolutely. And, you know, all these constructs, you know, there's no value judgment. It's not better to be an introvert or an extrovert. It's just, it's just, you know, human beings are distributed in this way. Some are more introverted, some are more, more extroverted, some are more neurotic, some are more adventure seeking or novelty seeking. So, um, right. So everyone's going to come at this with, uh, with a different approach. We see this a lot. I mean, this may be a little bit of a tangent, but when we think about caregivers and how they respond to their loved one who say has dementia, their own personality style is going to influence that. So there are folks out there uh, who are a little more obsessive, a little more detail oriented, you know, did I do this right? And then that and then get the checklist done and so on. So they may have one approach towards caregivers uh, and, and, and the caregiving, uh, caregiving role. Um, there are other folks that, uh, maybe a little more on the dramatic side. And, and so they're, they're going to have a different take, uh, in terms of how do they respond to the caregiving role. So that's just a general thing that we see that's likely to be amplified during these times of higher stress. You kind of, you fall back on some of those, uh, like baseline personality traits of how you respond to things. I'm glad you brought up caregivers because uh, really it segues into my next question of are there unique consequences for those with cognitive impairment and or the caregivers of those with cognitive impairment? Yeah, great question. I'm, I guess I'll start with the caregivers. You know, we know that caregivers 
to begin with are under stress and caregivers are at higher risk of depression and anxiety than the non-caregivers. So there's already a setup for folks having trouble. And then you layer on the stress of the pandemic and the anxiety associated with that, the stress of isolation, um, the change in routine, the change in all different kinds of other things, you know, worry about, you know, who's going to deliver my groceries or, you know, am I going to have enough money for next month and, you know, and so on. So all these added stressors on top of the baseline stress of caregiving means it'll be more challenging and we'll have to pay very careful attention to how caregivers through uh, do through this whole situation. Um, I could envision them responding with some guilt. You know, am I doing enough for my loved one? Um, am I protecting them from this awful virus? What if I get it? What if they get it? You know, sort of guilt and fear and apprehension of, of, about all this. So I think those are some of the particular stressors that caregivers are going to face with all this. People with cognitive impairment, um, you know, again, one of the challenges that they'll have with all this is there are going to be changes in routine. And we know that routine is really important for folks with cognitive impairment. It helps promote their memory. You know, that kind of that daily structure really helps them out both cognitively and, and emotionally. And so things are going to be different. I mean, maybe the, their five day a week caregiver who is coming in is not going to be able to come in anymore or, uh, going out, um, for lunch once a week, uh, with their spouse is not going to be an option anymore. So uh, that kind of disruption um, is going to be stressful for people with cognitive impairment. And they may not remember why are things disrupted. You know, why is it that I can't, uh, you know, do our, our weekly lunch outing? Or why isn't, uh, you know, my sister showing up regularly anymore? So they'll require frequent kind of reminders and, and reassurance about that. One of the things that I've been seeing or talking about in my clinic is that uh, those with cognitive impairment are experiencing more boredom because they're not able to go outside and or go to their activity center um, or see family. And that, that boredom has led to behaviors and agitation and just restlessness. Uh, are those, I mean, are those things that you would predict in people who are having any sort of thinking challenge? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think... Uh, a significant part of our interventions for folks with dementia, in particular, if they're feeling depressed or anxious or getting agitated, is to ensure that they've got adequate structure and activities over the course of the day, get people engaged in activities. There's value socially in those activities. There's value in the cognitive stimulation that you get from those activities. Some of them are physical uh, benefits, you know, like exercise or dance or things like that. And so we've kind of um, lost a very important tool in our toolkit to help people out. And then the question is how to replace that. You know, what are other activities that folks can be doing that don't rely so much on direct human interaction since those are going to be less possible? So, you know, I think of things like um, uh, um, the resources that are available on on the internet, for example, uh, or radio or TV, uh, kind of looking more to some of those things to at least get some of the cognitive stimulation and uh, uh, and 
uh, distraction, diversion from some of the other stressors that, that, that are going on. So I think we'll all be tasked with trying to find some alternatives, given that the usual activities may not be available for a little while. Well, I like the direction you're heading with this. And so I'm wondering what other things can we do, all of us, to prevent some of these negative consequences of social isolation? Absolutely. I mean, I think, so I, I've said, this is the third time I'm saying structure, so I'm sorry if I sound like a broken record. But I, I, you know, we most of us really do much better with routine and structure. And um, so what does that mean? That means, you know, simple things like what time am I getting up each morning? You know, it's kind of doing the same thing each morning in my wake up routine. Um, what time do I have breakfast? What time do I, you know, flick on the news or whatever my normal morning routine is? Uh, lunch, dinner, medication, sort of trying to um, continue that routine as much as possible, and especially nighttime stuff. I think this is one of the kind of the dangers that all of us can run into, uh, but especially people with cognitive impairment, is you know there, there's there's no uh, end of TV or internet or other sources of information late into the night that could potentially a keep us up and b cause fear and uh, and worry. So maintaining like a good nighttime routine, uh, ideally as close to what it was in the past, uh, turning off the TV, turning off the internet, uh, really settling down into a nice nighttime routine and trying to get as much sleep as as possible. Um, one other big area that comes to mind is, you know, folks under stress, uh, may turn to some coping mechanisms that aren't so helpful, like alcohol or drugs or things like that. And so, um, trying to avoid, uh, certainly avoid excessive alcohol use and any drug use, but probably best yet, just kind of stay away in general because, um, those ultimately aren't all that helpful coping mechanisms and could cause some other problems as well with sleep, with balance, with memory, with mood, uh, and, and so on. Art, I would, uh, I would also add to that list um, excess sugary, unhealthy food. Um, I can, I'm only speaking personally here, but having been isolated in my home uh, with just my family, I find myself in the evenings having more dessert than I usually would, which I know is impacting my sleeping quality. Um, so drugs, alcohol, and uh, sugary food, I guess I would add to that list. Uh, it's funny you mention that because uh, while we we're recording, my daughter brought up to me a fresh slice of banana bread, which I'm staring at, but I can't eat because we're recording a podcast right now. Um, <laughs> but it's interesting. So my family's been baking a lot more and, you know, that's, that, that's, that's fantastic. I'm certainly the beneficiary of that, but we might be eating a bit more than usual too. And so uh, I have to watch my calories over, over the course of the, over the course of the pandemic. But I agree. I think, you know, when people are depressed or stressed, they turn to carbohydrate rich food. Um, and again, that, that's sort of a self-soothing kind of thing, but that ultimately can be really um, problematic, especially if our normal other routines related to walking and exercise and so on are thrown off. So that's another part of routine that I'd mention. Um, you know, actually, if people do have more time on their hands, what a great time, especially now that it's spring and the weather's getting nicer to, to get out for a walk um, or add in some other exercise 
um, as a coping mechanism and as just a good way to promote physical and cognitive health. You know, are you also mentioned turning off the TV or iPhone, the news, the, our technology um, in the evenings? But there, sometimes I wonder if that could be, that that technology could be helpful to us. And so I'm wondering what you think of as far as social media and things like FaceTime and Skype and video chat as a helpful tool in addressing isolation. Absolutely. I mean, like like almost everything there, you know, there's it's good in moderation, and you know, there are benefits benefits, and there are side effects to all of these things. Um, so. Um, I, you know, the, the advent of things like FaceTime and Skype and Zoom and all those other kind of technologies for connecting people, I, I think that's been remarkable. And it's a, it's a fantastic way of people staying in touch with each other, um, for, uh, and, and for maintaining other social activities, you know, going to church, for example, virtually through, uh, through a Zoom broadcast, uh, or maintaining other social activities in in that way, that I think is amazing, and um, I think is a great way to maintain social ties. It's different, you know. It's obviously not the same as being in the room with another human being and able being able to hug them or hold their hand or make eye contact. Eye contact is really weird on some of these uh, interfaces. It's hard to know where to look, and you know, and so on. But anyway, uh, but in terms of being able to see someone or just hear someone, hear their voice, I think that can be incredibly reassuring and uh, and positive. So, um, so I think that part is all very good. Um, social media can be, I think, is maybe a little more mixed. You know, I'm sort of thinking now about things like Facebook and Twitter and so on. Again, as a way of staying in touch with other people, I think it's great. Um, as a source of news and information, that might be a little more um, mixed. And it's also, I think it's really easy to get into a kind of rabbit hole of clicking on one thing after another or clicking into really negative stuff um, on social media. And at some point, you just have to turn that off. Otherwise, it's, it's, just, it's just too anxiety provoking or depression provoking. So you've mentioned a lot of good tips and recommendations for our listeners. And so I'd always like to end these podcasts by asking you personally, you know, what's one thing that you think has been most helpful, most successful in addressing your daily behaviors or just addressing the isolation that we, that you've been feeling? Uh, I think, um, I've tried quite a bit to just kind of maintain my social ties with people as as much as possible. Um, all of our meetings basically have switched over to some sort of uh, online or video format of of some sort. Um, and one practice that I've I think I try to be more mindful of in in that setting um, is. Um, is gratitude is, you know, is being grateful and appreciative of others. Um, uh, you know, just kind of thanking other folks for still being able to communicate with me in this way, thanking them for all the work that they're doing, whether it's, you know, my colleagues or it's the caregiver of one of my patients, 
uh, or um, it's a family member, you know, wh- whoever it might be, um, really expressing my gratitude because that that's that's also a way of kind of connecting uh, as as human beings and and reflecting on why we're so important to each other. That's wonderful. And with that, I would like to thank you, Dr. Art Walsack, for joining us on part one of your interview with Dementia Matters. And to let our listeners know that shortly we will release part two, which will cover anxiety, stress management, and coping during this time. So thank you, Dr. Walsack. Thank you very much. Please subscribe to Dementia Matters on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts. And rate us on your favorite podcast app. It helps other people find our show and lets us know how we're doing. Dementia Matters is brought to you by the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. The Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center combines academic, clinical, and research expertise from the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health and the Geriatric Research, Education, and Clinical Center of the William S. Middleton Memorial Veterans Hospital in Madison, Wisconsin. It receives funding from private university, state, and national sources, including a grant from the National Institutes of Health for Alzheimer's Disease Centers. This episode was produced by Bonnie Nutkinson and edited by Bashir Adin. Our musical jingle is Organisms by Chad Crouch. Check out our website at adrc.wisc.edu. That's adrc.wisc.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at dementiamatters at medicine.wisc.edu. That's dementiamatters at medicine.wisc.edu. Thanks for listening.